you know, if I could give myself that advice or, you know, young folks now, nothing is wrong with you. You know, nothing at all. Like this is, it's, it's a part of life. It's a part of the journey, right? The journey is full of ups and downs and none of it is straight, you know, um, it's not a straight trajectory. Ask for help. And if the person that is trying to help you, you know, the person you go to can't help you or won't help you, ask the next person. podcast, but today is going to be a little bit different. I'm Tony Aline, founder and executive director of the Delaware College Scholars Program. And after hearing uh, Jake and Jordan do some amazing things with the show, I've decided to add my voice to the platform, albeit with a slight twist. Join me as I talk to different amazing people that I've come across both professionally and personally as we sit down and just have real conversations. No scripted questions or preconceived notions. Just me talking with folks I love and respect about what got them to where they are today in their lives. Just some straight up real talk with Tony. That said, to start up this phase of the podcast, I had the extreme pleasure of chatting with Genevieve Crespo. Born and raised in the South Bronx, Genevieve has forged herself into a strong woman of color with many hats. Similar to myself, she gained acceptance into a program in New York City before attending an independent school in Maryland, and then ultimately attended Columbia University, where she majored in ethnicity and race studies. We chatted about how her high school and college years has shaped her in all that she does today, where she has built an impressive career in financial services. She prides herself as a warrior for the underserved through her work with grassroots anti-racist organizations, as well as chairing the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Board at her former high school. We dove into how failures and setbacks happened back in the day and even today, but how we must continue to get up every time we fall. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Genevieve, for joining me for this conversation. Um, I'm so happy to be here. I'm, I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this. Let's give it, man. Let's give these scholars some good <laughs> insight. So the, the, the purpose of these conversations that I'm having is just me kind of tapping into my network, um, hopefully finding a lot of black and brown folks who are doing some amazing things in their career, but more so reflecting on how you got to this point in your life. Mm-hmm. So for our scholars, they kind of look at us and see how accomplished we are now in our 30s and 40s or late 20s, but they don't realize the, the journey that it took to get us to that point. So right. to begin the convo, I would just like you to talk about who you were when you were 14, 15, like early high school. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big question. It's it's a big question. It's It's crazy to even like to think about, you know, I, I do think about it regularly. And it's just me at 14, um, I was lost. I was really, really lost. Um, I grew up in the South Bronx, um, you know, single mom, you know, we did not have much of anything. And um, just, I had all these dreams that I was like, this is just, I'm thinking about this, but I know this is not for me. You know, like I just really didn't feel like I was good enough. Um, you know, I, I was like a smart quote unquote kid when I was younger, at least that's what teachers used to tell me. And then I got to like my teenage phase and, um, you know, as, as smart as I was or as smart as I, you know, someone told me I was, it just life happened and life really happens in the South Bronx, you know? And so 
I really battled with that. And, and um, you know, the, the adults around me went from saying, Genevieve, you're so smart to, you know, what are you doing here? And you're not much of anything, you know, um, whenever I tried to look into a program or, you know, whenever I did try to actually tap that dream, most people told me to sit down, <laughs> you know, this wasn't for me. And, um, you know, so that was, that was really what motivated me into everything else. And, and at that time, the everything else wasn't so great. You know, like I, I fought a lot when I was 14 years old. Um, I got into a lot of trouble when I was 14. I was at bumping heads with my mom constantly because my mom was like, no, you're going to be on the straight and narrow. And I was like, well, straight and narrow doesn't work out here in the, in the street. <laughs> you know, my mom worked long hours. She worked overnight. So as much oversight as, you know, she wanted to give me. Um, I was alone a lot of the time and just trying to find my way. This is what I thought I would be. This is who I am. And I settled really hardcore on like, this is all I'm ever going to be, you know? And um, yeah. So to, to, to speak and jump on that, because I, I, I see a lot of correlation with myself in terms of what you're saying and where I was at 14. And for me personally, the point that kind of changed my trajectory was getting into a program, Prep for Prep, mm -hmm. that showed me there was a different route than the projects in Brooklyn. Um, and then ultimately, it sent me to a boarding school, which within itself was a lot of um, issues of, of that I had to go through in terms of like cultural identity and, and growth. But it, it really did change my mindset toward what I felt that I could do. Uh, I'm curious, at that point for you, what was a turning point, or was there a turning point that kind of changed how you felt when you're 14 versus the rest of your high school career, maybe college. So I had, you know, I had an elementary school teacher who was one of those folks in my youth that was like, hey, you got something, you're smart, like, you know, you can be, you know, and left it open, right? She didn't try to push me into anything, but just said, you know, you got something, you have potential. And um, she kind of followed me throughout my years. And when I was in that place of just being lost and getting into a lot of trouble, and trying but falling and saying, you see, I tried it, it's not for me. Um, she really pushed hardcore in my mom's ear, like, don't give up, like try this program. And the program she was referencing was A Better Chance, which is very similar, right, to Prep for Prep. Um, and so, you know, my I was not really about it, <laughs> but, you know, my mom's way went. So my mother came to my, um, my school at that time and told our counselor, our guidance counselor, my guidance counselor, um, I want to put Genevieve in this program, you know, because my, my, for my mom, she was like, if I don't get you out of this neighborhood and out of this junk, like, you're not going to graduate high school. You might end up dead. Like, who knows what ditch you're going to be in? And my mom was absolutely right. Like, that is the direction I was going. But again, you know, when my mom proposed the program to my guidance counselor. My guidance counselor was like, she's not good enough. What are you thinking? Like, don't even think about it. No, I'm not going to help you put her into this program. Like we didn't know like, how to fill out all these forms and, you know, what step we had to take. Um, so guidance counselor shut that down. Thankfully, my mom is not the type to take no for an answer. So, you know, my mom, I don't know how she did it, but she figured it out on her own. And um, I got into the program and I don't know if, you know, what expectations my mother had. I certainly didn't have any. I was like, what private school is going to want me? You know, like I was practically failing out of ninth grade. Like that's, you know, that's where I was. And I had this, you know, really checkered past. Um, but I actually got into a private school. I got into one of the independent schools out in Maryland. And um, 
when I got there, I said, all right, this is it, right? Like, this is the thing that I've been waiting for, that I've been like, you know, dreaming about, but then sticking in, you know, my back pocket, maybe even next to the trash because it's not really for me. And I, I decided, you know what? I, I, I literally thought of it this way. I said, I'm going to pull my hair back. I'm going to, you know, like put it up in a bun. I'm going to wear, you know, like <laughs> baggy clothes. I'm just going to like wear comfortable clothes and I'm just going to go to school. Like that was my mindset. I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm not going to cause, you know, anyone to look at me or pay attention to me. Like that was how I rationalized it in my head that like I could just be real small and quiet. No one's going to realize that I'm not, I'm not that smart. Or that, you know, I'm actually a troublemaker and, you know, I have this past, you know. Um, so that was the turning point. And eventually, during those few years, you know, so those were the last few years of high school, I realized that, like, I don't have to be small. You know, I'm actually much bigger than this. And I actually am pretty smart, you know. And um, it it took a lot of help. You know, I didn't, I didn't get there just by myself. That You know, I, I met adults that, like pulled it out of me you know I don't know what they saw you know but they pulled it out of me so that was really the turning point for me and I asked you right there because you're kind of speaking about something that we talk to our scholars about constantly is the whole concept of imposter syndrome and what you're mm -hmm. describing is a, a level of that um, yeah so could you speak a little bit to how you felt like an imposter in that situation and the different oh, yeah. resources whether it was the adults in your life or outside of the adults in your life that helped you become self-aware of it and ultimately mm -hmm. overcome it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't feel like I belonged there. I didn't feel like I even deserved a chance. Um, you know, one, because I was poor, you know, a lot of folks and most folks in private schools have the money to be there. I didn't have anything, you know, um, I, I had, it had been drilled into my head for so long that I wasn't that smart that I believed it, you know, so who was I to deserve a chance, you know? And when I did start to succeed, I, f I felt like, well, maybe they're just being nice to me. Maybe they're just like being nice to the poor, you know, this poor girl from the South Bronx. I didn't feel like I actually deserved the things that I was working hard for. I mean, like when I say I put my hair in a bun and I put on my sweatpants, like I was about work. Like I was like, I'm battle. study, you know, like that's how I got, you know, ready. And um, I just, I didn't think that anything good that was happening to me was actually happening. Yes, because people were helping me, but because I was putting in the work, you know, and because I had this in me the entire time, you know, I just didn't have the opportunity, let's say, you know, to flourish, you know, um, like I could have. Um, so, you know, overcoming that one, I think it didn't, I didn't just overcome it then. And I think even today, like, you know, as a, a woman successful in her career, like I still battle that, you know, I, I, I don't know that you ever get over it. I think it's one of those things where you have to constantly remind yourself, like, this is who I am, you know, and this this person is intelligent. This person is capable. This person is deserving. And yes, there are people who have lifted me up along the way, you know, but they lifted me up, right? So it's not just them. It is me. Um, so I have gotten better at it over the years. Um, but it, I think it really started, you know, at, at that point, you know, those later years of, of high school, just overcoming that, that thing. And you're, you're jumping ahead uh, because I, I really <laughs> want to dive into no, 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 I love it. I love it. Uh, because I want to talk later on about just being a underrepresented person within your career field. Mm -hmm. So being a woman yeah. of color in finance, 
it's rare um, in terms mm-hmm. of like su- surviving that field and even entering that field. Uh, but before right. we jump to that, mm-hmm. what you're describing, and I would say we, because I, I felt the same way when I went to high school and I went to a boarding school similar to yours, is what many of my scholars experience when they go to college um, mm-hmm. in terms of now they're outside of their norm um, and right. they've done well enough to get accepted and attend college, but then they start questioning themselves once they're away yeah. from home. So whether it's because they're around a whole bunch of white people at a PWI or academically, mm-hmm. it may be a little bit more challenging and they're not used to getting hit with those kind of grades and all those right. different kind of things. Um, right. so, so now I, I will ask, as you progressed in high school um, and maybe even in college, how did you know that what you were doing was the right thing? As in, were you taking the right classes? Were you choosing the right college to attend? Um, were you surrounding yourself with the right people? Like, at what point did you start kind of evaluating those situations and trying to put yourself in a better kind of circumstance? For me, so the first thing is, once I got there and I put my hair up in that bun, right, I didn't just start getting A's. Like, I was failing. I was failing miserably. And this time, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't failing because I just didn't do the work. This time, I was up until the middle of the night studying and reading and writing the papers and I just wasn't doing well, you know? So um, it, I, every, every second of being there, you know, made me say, am I doing the right thing? You know, and I don't know that I ever felt like, oh, I know that I know 100% I'm doing the right thing. I just felt like I had no choice. You know, it was like either I am going to try this until I can't try no more or I have to go back home. And for me, back home meant a lot of not good things. You know, I knew I wasn't doing well back home. You know, I knew that when I was back home, you know, it was always a question of like, do I study or do I have to protect myself in the street because somebody's going to want to fight me? Or, you know, do we have enough food at home? Like, you know, those were the choices I was faced with back home. So I was like, it's either this or it's that. You know, and right here, you know, right now I'm, I'm in this situation and it's not looking too good, but this is my only opportunity and I got to give it all I have, you know, and um, it, I'm fortunate that it worked out. It didn't work out, you know, for, for a lot of folks, you know, there were other students who were in my position that, you know, and I understand, you know, what, where they came from and, and why they went, you know, the routes they, they, they did, you know, but how do I, how do I say this? Like, it's not easy to stick it through, you know, like, cause I mean, being in private school, it, it's all the things you said, right. It's like being in a space where nobody looks like you. It's, you know, being surrounded by a whole bunch of, you know, white wealthy folks who, you know, don't always necessarily think the best of you. Um, the imposter syndrome, just getting acclimated to a new state in some cases, like all these things, you know, it's, it's real easy to tap out, you know, and some people did, you know, I, I didn't cause I just felt like I had no choice, you know? So when it was over, I was like, uh-huh. All right. That was the right thing to do. But I didn't know that until I got to the finish line and got into college, you know? So I, I you know, my, my thought to, to young folks is always, you, you may not know if this is worth it. 
You know, it may not feel worth it when you're failing constantly and you're trying and things don't seem to be working out, but you have to keep trying. You have to keep going the distance. That's the only way you're going to know. It's funny, man, because when I talk to my folks um, in my program, I constantly reference that, like, I'm from Brooklyn, um, to the point that it's a joke. Like, it's part of who I am in my dialogue. I always reference some of the things that I, I gained for just from growing up in Brooklyn. Um, and when I say Brooklyn, it's not only literally the area of 718 Brooklyn, it's right. the community that I was part of. Um, right. And a, a lot of things that I experienced and people like us experienced growing up in the South Bronx of Brooklyn, it may not necessarily be positive, um, but right. at no point do I ever want my narrative to be pitied. Um, mm -hmm. And I would want you to, to speak a little bit about that because we can both highlight the struggles of where we come from. But there was a whole bunch of strength and core mm -hmm. values that we gained from our communities. Um, so yeah. for the sake of the scholars um, and for the mm -hmm. students who are kind of like listening to our stories, just talk a little bit about some of the core values that you gained that even when you left the South Bronx and you went to high school and college, you always kept at your core that helped you to persevere every time you failed. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of this, I'm like the South Bronx version of that, right? Like people always are like, oh, here comes the South Bronx, you know, like, because I, I, I carry, I carry it with so much pride. Yeah, and I always say the, the Bronx is like the second best borough, so I, I get it. <laughs> Brooklyn's first and you mean, the Bronx. You second. mean the Brooklyn. Nah, Brooklyn it's, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> we, we won't go there, right? <laughs> but I mean, you know, being from the South Bronx is like, is it's this dual thing, right? Like it, you, you think about it and it's like, wow, I survived some stuff, you know? But I mean, people from the South Bronx, you know, we, as folks from Brooklyn, right? Like there is something also magical, you know, about being, you know, from communities like that. I mean, my, my ability to make that choice of like, hey, this is difficult in high school and I'm just going to stick it through. The South Bronx taught me that. You know, like the South Bronx taught me like, oh, th this is tough. You are tougher than that, you know, and that's something I have carried, you know, throughout my entire life. You know, when I'm faced with difficulties at work now as an adult, you know, years later, you know, my, my spot, you know, I actually I actually emailed somebody at work, you know, not long ago. You know, they, they sent me a, a snippy email trying to demean me, you know, and I said, do I have to remind you I'm from the South Bronx? <laughs> I don't know who you think you're talking to, you know, but, you know, and that wasn't to say I was going to go fight him in the street, but to say, listen, I deliver and I deliver consistently, you know, and that's what, you know, I learned growing up in my neighborhood. You know, my neighborhood just taught me, like, I'm capable of anything. You know, I can withstand. I can persevere. And I was surrounded by folks who persevered, you know, in, in their own right, you know, like persevering in my neighborhood, but everybody did it mean. They got into a program and they went to college, you know, but they got up every day and they worked jobs, you know, and second jobs and third jobs to put, you know, food on, you know, on their tables, you know, and they came from different countries, you know, and they started a new life for themselves or, you know, they faced all the difficulties that black and brown people face, you know, when they step out their door, you know, and the cops are over-policing their neighborhood, you know, and they survived, you know, so, I mean, the South Bronx just, you know, it's, it's not a... When I talk about the difficulties, it's not asking for pity. It is, look at who we are. You know, look at what we're capable of. Again, the situation is tough. I'm, I'm tougher than that. So. Oh, man. So now let's fast forward a decade plus later. 
South Bronx, woman of color in finance. How have you, first of all, how do you, how did you realize that that was going to be your career? Did you know that early on and then you kind of planned methodically from jump to do it? Um, how did you end up where you are now? So it, it's not, so when I graduated college, I didn't jump into finance immediately. I actually was in theater for like two or three years. And rewind, what did um, you major in in college? Uh, ethnicity and race studies. Holy cow, wait, so pause. <laughs> so you're in finance now. Yes. You studied ethnicity and race studies, and you went yeah. into the arts. Yes. So now nah, you got to I know, a, a lot to unpack here, right? Yeah. <laughs> So let's start with one, why I majored in ethnicity and race studies, right? When I was in high school, um, I, I took a course, uh, I think it was my Spanish course, and it wasn't just learning how to speak Spanish, but we were, you know, learning about like revolutions in Spain and just talking about like the uprisings in Latin America and the history there. And I was really interested in like people overcoming and people standing against you know, oppressive systems. And so I was having dinner with that particular teacher one day and just like gushing over, like, I need to know more about this, you know? And she told me, you know, when you go to college, like you could study something like this, like as your major. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, I thought I had to like go be a doctor or, you know, an engineer or just like a lawyer. Like those are the three things that I knew I could be, right? Cause that's all anybody ever tells us. And those are great things, but there are other things too. Um, so I got to college, you know, um, and it was actually an offering. Like we had a, you know, center for, you know, race and ethnic studies at, at my university. Um, and somebody had told me once, and, and I, I took it to heart. They said, you know, when you go to school, you know, study the thing that you love, study the thing that interests you, because one, it's going to be four years of your life, right? If not more, if you if you go past that. But a lot of the things you need to learn for certain careers, you're going to learn them on the job, you know, through hands-on training or certificates, mentorship, et cetera. So I said, all right, well, this is a thing that I'm passionate about. So that's how I studied ethnicity and race studies. Uh, fast forward, I graduate. I had always been a creative person. So I used to love to act when I was a kid. I used to sing. I used to play guitar. Like for me, it was just being creative was a, was was a way of dealing with like the turmoil that I had within me and um, it helped me get through a lot of craziness and those crazy times so when I graduated I I didn't graduate with a job because again I didn't come from a background that someone told me you know you should be interning while you're in college and you should be you know looking I was just like, how do people graduate with jobs you know so here I am like not having a job, but I got a college degree. Yeah, I started looking through the paper, and there was an ad for a play, uh, an off-Broadway play, that was specifically about race. It was, you know, about the, the relationship between the African-American community and the Latino community. So I was like, well, I love creativity. I, this is my field of study. Let me audition. That sounds you like know, a South Bronx I, situation. Yeah, you know. So I said, let me audition. I actually got the part and I spent two or three years with them. And, you know, we, we went around the country for those two or three years, you know, doing the play, but then speaking, you know, to college students about, you know, African-American history, you know, 
what it even means to be Latino, because that's a loaded term, right? And how you can be Black and Latino, which, you know, is a, a, another, like, nuanced, loaded, you know, topic. So I, I did that for two or three years. It came to an end. I was like, all right, I can't do this forever, <laughs> you know? And when I finished that, you know, that was, you know, the financial crisis. And so that made looking for a different job really hard because a lot of folks weren't hiring, but the area, you know, or the industry that was hiring was financial services, you know, because financial services was booming, you know, the world is falling apart. People need services. They need advice. They need all these things. So I said, all right, I don't know if I could do this, but again, let me just put myself out there. And I got, you know, hired right away. And so it kind of just fell in my lap. I never planned to like be in finance. I certainly didn't think I was going to be, you know, in finance all these years or at the level that I'm at now. But when I started it, you know, it was another like, it was another situation. It was like being in high school all over again, you know, because people just didn't look like me, you know, and people don't respect people who look like me. And I realized there that the industry was set up that there were folks who were doing well and making much more money than I was. And they weren't necessarily smarter than me at all, but they came from wealthy backgrounds. They had a wealthy network and they were able to tap into those networks and that, you know, propelled their success. Now my network was full of people like me, you know, who did they have any money? Did they have any wealth? And if they, you know, just started to get some wealth, you know, where the thought of, you know, coming to see a financial planner or a financial advisor was like, hey, I don't got time for that. I got to go back home and take care of my mom and my grandma now that I finally got a job, you exactly. know? So I struggled in the beginning of my career to, to, to one, figure out, do I really belong here? Can I really do this? Can I withstand this again? You know, mm -hmm. can I withstand this as I am failing? Because I failed a lot in the beginning of my career, you know, and am I going to push through? Man, so I, I love what you're saying, and for so many different reasons, it fits like perfectly with what we're trying to do with the program. To one thing is all our students, um, around eighty percent of the or like sixty percent of the kids come in saying that they want to be a doctor, not mm -hmm. um, in the medical field, not in healthcare. They want to be doctors, um, yeah. and then there's a good twenty twenty five percent that want to be an engineer or a lawyer. And it's all because of the perceived um, level of esteem and ultimately the money that you make in those industries. But what right. they don't get is that there's so many other things you can do. And yeah. uh, the most immediate barrier for them or for the scholars is that they believe that I need to go to college right away and major in pre-med, in pre-law, right. in business right. to get to that. So many of them don't understand because they're they're not being counseled and being told by people in their circle when they're in high school that not. Nah, you can major in AFM or Latina studies. You could do all these different things and still get to that end point. Um, you could right. follow your passion and things you care about. So for instance, the whole creative side, so many of the students are super creative, but they feel mm -hmm. that they can't do that in college uh, right. because there's no money in it. No, you could do both. Right. Like you can major yes. in arts, you can major in something else and still do it. So I love right. when people kind of show scholars or, or we talk to the scholars about following your passion, do what you care about. And we can right. still plan a, a way for you to still get into those industries. Um, so your whole story kind of connects directly to that, especially for the folks that want to get into business. 
It's like, yeah, you can major in business. That would be helpful. But you could also do other things and still ultimately get to that goal. Right. And the thing is, like, when you're – so I study something I love, right? And it doesn't mean that I study this thing, I finish it, and now I tuck it away and I do finance. Like, what I learned in my degree makes me fantastic in my field. You know, so I – so when you – at least in, in my uh, university – when you study uh, race and ethnicity, you have to study on a track, right? So a lens through which you study the program. My lens was sociology. So, you know, what does a sociologist do? We fix societal and organizational problems, right? And that, that skill of being able to find the whole and then fix it, I mean, that is what has really, really made me successful in my career. You know, like I am the person you know, that people go to, to find the problems, to fix the problems, you know, to make sure, you know, the organization is, is running in a certain way. You know, I, I am a big part of my job is, 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 you know, being able to ha have like, you know, a sharp, sharp analytical mind, you know, and I got that not from studying business finance courses. I didn't study any of that, you know, when I was in college, I, I took my sociology track, you know, I studied, people, you know, and problems and multi-layered problems, you know, so that's what makes me successful. So, and, and, you know, I also do things on the side that are more very, you know, clearly connected to race and ethnicity. Um, so it's, it's exactly what you're saying. You can, you can follow your passion and do these other things and bring your passion along with you for the ride, you know? Love it. I, I have two more questions for you um, that we'll, mm -hmm. we'll dive into. So the first is looking at you now and everything that you've gotten at this point, if you could go back to the high school version of yourself, what piece of advice would you give yourself? The biggest piece of advice, um, I would tell myself to ask for help and not to give up when someone says no or when someone shuts a door, you know, like, so I, yeah, I'll stop you there just the to door, clarify, you know? because mm -hmm. I, I think I get what you're saying. Um, I feel like our scholars only understand that in an academic way. So mm -hmm. I don't understand math. I need to go to my teacher for help. Um, are you talking purely in academic sense or beyond academics? Beyond academics. Definitely in academics, you know, um, but, but in all ways. You know, so I never went to anyone and said, you know, hey, I'm not doing well in math because I don't understand math. But, hey, I'm not doing well in math because, you know, this is happening in my house or, you know, um, I feel like I don't belong here. I never said those things out loud. And I, I know it, it's, it's a little more complicated than that because you also have to find, you know, the person that can actually help you and the person that you trust, you know, but. It, I think my life would have been easier as a young person if I would have just said, I'm going to bang on every door until somebody, you know, gives me what I need and, and helps me in the way that I need to be helped. And that's really hard to do as a young person. It's hard to do as an adult. Right. Um, but there are people and resources and things, you know, there are people that care about us enough that will, you know, reach, reach out, reach up, reach down, you know, pick us up you know but if they don't know what we're going through right like they can only do but so much you know um and, and I, I, I didn't do that i'm glad you brought that up because 
I, I feel that we both grew up in around the same time period. And I know for me, it was a, a strong stigma with uh, social emotional help and support. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. part of the gift and the curse of being from Brooklyn is that when things are tough, you knuckle up, you suck it up, and you yes. do what you have to do. Um, and yes. I, I felt like for me as an Afro-Latino male, I felt weak and vulnerable if I admitted that I was doubting myself. So I had to put on this front to be as strong as possible. And inside, I was like, man, this is hard. Um, and one thing that's different with students nowadays is that they're aware of the concept of depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. But there's still a stigma of asking for support around that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. what we try to tell the scholars is that you are not weak when you are making yourself vulnerable and asking for that type of assistance. If anything, you're mm-hmm. showing your strength and your self-awareness. So even right. though they could Google depression and anxiety, it doesn't mean that they're still asking or they're actually intentionally trying to get support around it. Right. I mean, I, I grew up the same way about it, uh, my, my mother did the best she could with what she had, but when I was struggling and when I was depressed, you know, my, my mom's answer was literally get up and go to work. That's what I do when I'm depressed. I get up and go to work. And, you know, I was in a, you know, in high school, I went through this in college. I was like, I can't get up and go to work. <laughs> like I literally can't, you know? So, but I had that in my ear that, you know, something is wrong with me. Something must be wrong because my mom was able to get up and go to work with her children, you know, and still feed us and all these things. Something is wrong with me, you know, so nothing was wrong with me. I just I needed to talk to somebody, you know, so I, you know, if I could give myself that advice or, you know, young folks now, nothing is wrong with you. You know, nothing at all. Like this is, it, it's a part of life. It's a part of the journey, right? The journey is full of ups and downs and none of it is straight, you know, um, it's not a straight trajectory. Ask for help. And if the person that is trying to help you, you know, the person you go to can't help you or won't help you, ask the next person, you know, um, and the next person and the next person and the next person, because you are, you are deserving, you know, uh, you are worthy of, your best life, you know, of, um, of being in the best space and feeling your best and, and getting the help and the resources that you need, you know, to do the things that you want to do. See, man, folks are going to think that you're on a salary, man. Like I pay you to say all this stuff <laughs> because this is what we do. Like the whole concept of the cohort experience is to one, mm-hmm. have our scholars surrounded by other like-minded students from across the state. I mean, across yeah. the country now to let them know, first of all, you're not alone. So you have this mm-hmm. network of folk like you. Um, but then our staff, we fully track the students when they're in college to, again, let them know we are here. Like, if you can't right. talk to someone back in your crib, you can talk to us. And if we can't right. help you, we're going to part you to the social emotional support at your college or find somebody in the community right. to help you, to let you know that you don't have to kind of have this burden in your weight by yourself. What you're going through right. is normal. Imposter syndrome is a thing because it really is a thing. So how do we kind of help support right. them? So everything you're saying is in line fully with the work that we're doing. And and you know what? You don't have to know what's, what's, because I feel like young people don't always know, and adults too, right? But certainly young people, we don't always know what what the problem is. We just know we don't feel right. Mm -hmm. You know, so you don't have to wait to say, "Uh aha, I have imposter syndrome or I am depressed, you know, to go get help. You know, like you don't have to wait for that. You know, you don't have to go figure that out first and then ask for somebody 
you know, to help you or to, you know, help you to the next step. Just, you're not feeling right. Things ain't looking good. That's when you go. Um, For real. And part of that too is um, being able to self-regulate and understand Mm -hmm. the things that when you are feeling off, what kind of helps you find your balance? So like for me, it's working out. So if I'm feeling a little bit off, um, especially seasonally, like when it's really dark outside, I just don't feel the urge to do things. But I know going Mm -hmm. to gym, it really helps me out. So whether it's writing, if it's acting, if it's whatever it is, just find that thing that helps to recharge your battery. So now my last question. So at this point in uh, your life and your career, what do you feel? What do you want your legacy to be in terms of what do you want to be known as? And don't give me the answer of I want to be known as a good wife and a mother because that's the answer that I give. <laughs> but beyond that, beyond the family, um, in terms of people when they Google you, what do you want them to see? The biggest thing for me is I want to be known for fighting for the most vulnerable of us. That's what I want to be known for. Yes, my family is important to me, <laughs> but that's what I want to instill in them as well. You know, that is. You know, it is what caused me to study race and ethnicity studies to begin with. You know, it is why, you know, I I joined that that theater group. It's why now, even though I'm a, over a decade into my career in finance, I'm still working, you know, to to be there and to fight for people who don't have people fighting there, you know, fighting for them, you know, Um in an educational setting, that's what I do. Um, I also am part of what's called the Franklin Square Anti-Racism Coalition. And that's an, an organization in my own community um, where a bunch of us like-minded folks were like, um, there's a lot of racist, you know, homophobic, transphobic, etc. stuff happening in this town and we have to do something about it, you know? and that's outside of my nine to five, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's how I want to live out, you know, the rest of my life, just constantly, constantly, you know, taking the privileges that I have, you know, and, and using it for something other than myself, <laughs> you know, so because we all have some form of it, I have plenty of it. And what, what are we here for, you know, if, if not to help our brother, our sister. Um, so that's definitely what I would want my legacy to be. Mic drop, I love it. Thank you, Genevieve, for taking your time to talk with us today. Thank you.